Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy and like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now we saw last week that Jesus' yoke sets us free from the yoke of slavery to the law and its demands. Tonight's lesson is going to take us even deeper into a study of that. Now Jesus and, his, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and some of the disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat them. Now before we get into the Pharisees' attack and everything, what I want you to do is, is think about this for a second. Have you ever considered that for the Pharisees to see the fact that these disciples put, plucked some grain and threshed it, if you will, in their hands and blew the chaff away and ate the grain. Where would the Pharisees have had to have been to see it? Walking there with them. So as Jesus is walking around and the disciples are with him and they just happen to be going through a grain field, the Pharisees are walking along with them through the grain field. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think the disciples were walking along with them on the Sabbath through a grain field? We see from our context why they're looking for something to accuse him about. They're looking for some little way to find something so that they can accuse him. Look at verse 10 again of chapter 12. In verse 10, uh, the man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why did they ask that question? So that they might accuse him, it says there. Now, over the years, as I travel around and teach in churches around the country, sometimes I'll be at places for a week or so, and inevitably someone will say, you seem to know a lot of the Bible. Would you take a night and do a question and answer night? And I say, fine. I, I enjoy doing question and answer nights. But I found also over the years that whenever I do a question and answer night, there's usually one or two people that will ask questions, but their desire is not to get an answer. Their desire is not asking the question to find out what my answer is. They're wanting to know whether or not I agree with them or they're looking for an opportunity to argue with me. Now, over the years, I've learned 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must gently instruct in the hopes that God will bring him to an understanding. And so I've learned over the years now when I sense that the person's attitude is not because they're curious and wanting to learn, but their attitude is, I want to argue with you in front of all these people, or I want to see if you agree with me. I've begun to ask people, 
let me ask you a quick question. Is the reason for asking this that you want to hear what my response is so that you can learn, or is your desire to set me up in order to attack? And I'll just tell them, if that is your purpose, we're not going to waste our time and everybody else's time going back and forth. If you want to talk to me about something, see me afterwards. But if you're wanting an answer, I'd love to give an answer. But there, there are those who are out to get Jesus, the Pharisees especially. Go to Psalm 109 and look at verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> now, as you turn to Psalm 109, verses 1 through 5, I don't know how many of you have ever taken the time to really kind of sit and read the Psalms. But as much as the Psalms were written by David and Asaph and others, and they wrote about their own struggles or celebrations. I don't know how many of you have noticed that the Psalms are full of prophecy. And they're full of prophecy about Jesus himself and what he would experience while he was on the earth. We see in Psalm 109, the heading says that to the choir master, it was a Psalm of David. But listen to what it says in verses one through five. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. Speaking against me with lying tongues, they encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. So is this really talking about David? No, this is obviously talking about Jesus and his prophecy of what Jesus was going to go through. And how even though he came to seek and to save the lost, they reward his love with hatred and his good with evil. Go to Revelation chapter 12. Now, I'm laying a foundation in the beginning here before we start breaking our passage down for tonight. I'm laying a foundation that you're going to see is going to keep coming up throughout the whole study. In Revelation chapter 12, looks into verses 7 through 10. Here's the description of the war that's going to happen in the midpoint of the tribulation. It says in Revelation 12, verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night. Before our God. Now, real quickly, people have said for years, God, evil can, God cannot be in the presence of evil. You ever heard people say that? Well, the Bible's real clear that Satan's in his presence right now. He, was, he lost his position of authority when he rebelled, but he's allowed to go into the presence of God. Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 tells us that the angels appear before God. Satan came with them. You know, they have to check in. The scripture says that he accuses us day and night before God. He's the accuser of the brothers. Now, I say this for a reason. The Pharisees are following Jesus in hopes that they might find a reason to accuse him, point out what they think he's doing wrong. Where's that coming from? We see it here. It's coming from Satan. Please hear how much I love you when I say this. Don't be one of them. You see, because unfortunately, over the years, Christians have been known for being just like this. Where for some reason, Christians 
start thinking they're better than the other people around them. They're better than those in the world. And they love to point out the wickedness of this world and the evil that's going on. Or even amongst each other, Christians have a tendency to look for ways to point out what people around them in the church are doing in ways they don't think they ought. Folks, don't be one of them. As you're going to see tonight in our study, when you decide to say, well, that person's not doing it that right, or I wouldn't do it that way, I would do it this way, what you're first off doing is trying to make yourself feel better by pointing out other people's wrongs. And also, as you're going to see later on, you really don't know the whole story of what's really going on. And a lot of times when we think someone's doing something they're not supposed to be doing, you might not be right. And you'll see that come out in our study. Beware of becoming one of those people who tend to condemn others to justify ourselves. Go with me to Job chapter 40. God says something very interesting to Job. Actually, he says a lot of things interesting to Job when he shows up and has his face to face with Job. <clears throat> God's conversation with Job starts in chapter 38, but we're going to get into the middle of it in chapter 40. Now, for those of you that have ever studied the book of Job, you know that at the beginning, when God allows all these things to happen, Satan comes and says, let me do this, let me do that, and God lets him. At the beginning, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Job doesn't charge God with wrongdoing. The Bible says he doesn't sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But if you keep reading after chapter 2, Job starts to fuss about God a little bit. He starts to say that he's not right, it's not fair. A uh, man can't talk to God. I wish I could defend myself. I'd sure like to defend myself before him, but man can't. And he starts to actually accuse God of being unjust. And God speaks to him, again, starting in chapter 38. But in verse, chapter 40, look at verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man, and I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? that you may be in the right? Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want to show a hands. Have any of you ever done that to God? You all should have raised your hand, because we all have. Have you ever thought to yourself, if I were God, I wouldn't have done that? Or I don't think that's right, or I don't think that's fair. Why did God do that? Without realizing it, what you're really saying is, if I were God... I wouldn't have done that. You condemn him to justify yourself. Folks, it's in all of us. And we have to be careful. And that's going to help us in our study of this passage tonight as we deal with Jesus and the Pharisees and how they were following him around looking for a way to accuse him. It's easy for us to get just kind of sucked into sitting back in our comfy chairs here in our air conditioning, pointing our finger at the Pharisees and look at how bad they were trying to accuse Jesus and totally miss the whole point. We have that same tendency in us as well. And even though we're forgiven of our sins and we're children of God, there's still that tendency to try to point out other people's sins to make ourselves feel better. And in doing so, we'll make a lot of mistakes. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 12. Let's read it again. 
At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we'll, we could go on and read what happened as they went into the synagogue on that Sabbath day. But interestingly enough, even though the law of God did not allow harvesting for a prophet on the Sabbath, the law actually did allow someone to eat someone else's grain if they were hungry. Did you know that? If not, go with me real quick to Deuteronomy 23. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, look at verses 24 and 25. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 24, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. By the way, this is not applied to the produce department at Publix, okay? <laughs> Uh, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes as many as you wish, but you shall not put it in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, God has set up in the law that if you're hungry and you need something and you happen to be passing by someone's grain field or their, their, their vineyard, you're allowed to have a couple of grapes. You're allowed to take a little bit of grain and put it in your mouth and chew it. You weren't allowed to harvest somebody else's grain, but you're allowed to take some of that stuff. And the law of God said on the Sabbath they were to do no work, so they couldn't harvest for profit. But the law of God didn't say that it was wrong to eat someone else's grain. But even though the law here says that it's okay for them to eat it, Jesus doesn't quote Deuteronomy 23. When, when the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of doing something unlawful on the Sabbath, what does Jesus use as his quote-unquote defense? Of his disciples. What David did when he ate the shoe bread or the bread of the presence. And then he also pointed out that, have you ever thought about the fact that the priests break the Sabbath laws every Sabbath when they work and do their work on the Sabbath? Because they had to. Jesus went deeper than just saying, hey guys, legally, Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25 said that they could do that. It's no big deal. But he doesn't go there. He goes deeper than that. Because what he's wanting them to understand is the heart of the law, the purpose of the law. Was God, did God give us the law so that if we lived it perfectly, we'd be righteous? Is that why the law was given? Why was the law given? To show that what? You need him and you can't keep it. That's the purpose of the law. You know the Bible actually says very clearly that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. But through the law, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and following, through the law we become conscious of sin. And interestingly enough, if you study Romans chapter 5, you'll see that Paul's laying out that one man's sin, Adam's, passed on to all mankind and all died. But one man, Jesus' act of righteousness covers and all those sins and makes us righteous. And in doing so, he points out the fact that Adam and Eve broke a command of God when God said, 
don't eat from this one tree. And they broke his law. They broke his word by disobeying and they died. Not only spiritually at that moment, but physically they began to die. But the law of God doesn't come until hundreds of years later. But Paul points out that all those people between Adam and the law of Moses, they all died. You know why? Because the soul that sins, it shall die. And he's pointing out that the fact that these people all died between Adam and Moses showed that they were sinners and they died because of it, even though they didn't break any commands. So why was the law given? Go to Romans chapter 5 and look at verse 20. You may be surprised at what it says. In Romans chapter 5, look at verse 20. The law, the law was added so that the trespass would what? Increase. Isn't that crazy? The law wasn't given so that people would live by it and become righteous. The law was given so that man would sin more. That's crazy. That seems nuts to us, but that's what the scripture teaches us. The law was added so that the trespass would increase. Why? If you don't know you have cancer and it's in you and it's killing you, wouldn't you like to know it's there so you can treat it? The law is like an MRI. It doesn't give you cancer. You already had the cancer. It reveals it. And these people are all dying because of their sin. And the law was added so that they would sin more and realize that they're sinners. Isn't that what Jesus is doing all through the book of Matthew as he's teaching the Jews and the Pharisees? And he's saying, look, you think you're righteous. You don't think you have cancer, but you do. You know, you think you're OK because you haven't committed adultery. I say if you've looked lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. You think you're OK because you haven't murdered anybody. If you've been angry with your brother, it's like you, you broke that law. You have a sin in you and you don't realize it. The law's purpose was to come and reveal sin in the heart of man. It wasn't so that we would try to keep it perfectly. And so when Jesus is accused or his disciples are accused of breaking the Sabbath laws, what they were saying was they harvested. They worked on the Sabbath because they harvested by picking and then they threshed because they separate the wheat from the chaff. And they probably just went, blew the chaff away and they ate the grain. They harvested. They broke the law. And Jesus could have easily gone legally. They didn't. But he goes deeper than that. And he says, well, hang on for a second. Didn't the law say that David... And his men weren't allowed legally, according to the law, to eat that bread of the presence. You say, wait a minute, Jim, we're not really sure what you're talking about. Go with me to Leviticus 24. Let's go to the law of God that Jesus refers to. In Leviticus 24, look at verses 5 through 9. The law says in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 5, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, that means the priests, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So the law said that they were every Sabbath to have 12 loaves of bread baked and they were set before the Lord. The last 12 were to be eaten by the priests alone. That's what the law said. It's a holy portion 
And the priests were the only ones allowed to eat it. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 21. First Samuel 21, look at verses 1 through 6. It says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So did David and his men sin by eating that bread? Not according to Jesus. But then Jesus points out, don't you realize, according to the law, the priests break the Sabbath rules. They profane the Sabbath. Every Sabbath that they work. But you remember all those Sabbath regulations or all the activities in the, in the the temple had to be continued even on a Sabbath day, the continuing of the burning of the incense and the offering of the different things. What Jesus was saying was, um, if you want to look at this legally, keeping it perfect, you're totally going to miss the whole purpose of the law. Now, I'm going to share something with you that I hope doesn't throw a curveball to some of you. I hope you're spiritually mature enough to stick with me here, because this kind of a thing starts to really start to give people belly aches. But if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 5, you'll see that Naaman is healed of leprosy. And when he's healed of leprosy, his first reaction is come to the prophet and he says, I want to pay you for this. And the prophet says, no money. He said, then I got two other questions. He said, one is this. Um, could I have a bag of Israelite dirt? Because I would like to take a sack of Israelite soil back with me to Aram. And I would love to worship the true God now on Israelite soil. Prophet says, go ahead. He says, I got one more request. He says, as in my job as right hand man to the king, when he bows to the idle rimen, he leans on my arm and I have to bow with him. In my heart, I'll be bowing to the true God, but my body will be bowing before this idol. Is that OK? And the prophet says to him, go in peace. Let me ask you another question, though. Would, were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego allowed to bow to that Nebuchadnezzar statue? Could, could someone have said to them, look, you just bow in your body to that idol, but in your hearts bow to the true God? In that instance, they would have been in trouble for doing it. But the pr prophet in this instance tells Naaman, it's okay. Do you know when uh, the story about uh, the army surrounding the prophet in the city and uh, his servants all scared and, and the prophet prays, Lord, open his eyes and he sees all the chariots of the army of the Lord around that army. And the God strikes them blind. And the prophet comes out and says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for prophet so-and-so. And he goes, he's not here. He lies right to him. He goes, but I'll show you where he is. And he leads them to another city where they're all attacked. We get kind of caught up in everything being done right and wrong. And we miss the heart of the law. In John chapter 
uh, 7 verses 53 through 811, you have the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. The law said she should be stoned, correct? It was very clear. Actually, the law said she and the guy she was caught with were both to be stoned. So they bring Jesus, this woman caught in the act, and they say the law says she should be stoned. By the way, the reason why they did this wasn't because they really cared about the woman or anything. They thought they had him. Because here he was pretending to be a friend of sinners and, and all this love stuff. And, but if we tell him that the law says, and he says no to the law, he'll be breaking the law because it's, it's in black and white. Yet at the same time, if he has her stoned, he's going to look real bad in front of all these people that he's been preaching forgiveness of sins. We got him. Now, we don't know what Jesus wrote in the dirt, but the Bible says Jesus just knelt down and started writing some things in the dirt. There's been speculation for years of what Jesus wrote. I think he was just playing flag football and he was just drawing a pattern. And, and you know, hey, Peter, go for the long bomb. And John, now we don't know. But what does, he, what, what does he say? He said, those of you without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Let me ask you a question. Was there anybody there that could throw a stone? There was. We all think and say, no, there wasn't anybody there. No, there was someone there who was without sin. But he doesn't. Why? Was the law about keeping it perfectly? Or was the law about revealing our hearts? That's it. But what happens to us as Christians all of a sudden is we start becoming judges of all of those around us on whether or not they're doing it the way we think they ought to do it. I can't believe he didn't wear a tie when he preached on Sunday morning. I can't believe that uh, that woman wore that dress. You know, the Bible actually says in the, in the scriptures that women are to dress when they come to church in such a way that they don't draw attention to themselves, but the focus is on God. But what we've done is just like the Pharisees and add all these other extra regulations. Can't braid your hair. You can't add go wear gold. You can't all this stuff. Folks, without realizing it, we've become like the Pharisees. And I say to you, don't become one of them because you don't know what God's doing in someone's life. And actually, he's more interested in their hearts becoming softened and realizing their need of a Savior than he is whether or not they keep every law perfectly. Let me show you something that you might not have ever seen. Go to Colossians chapter 2. By the way, they didn't get this last night. You got something free. Go to Colossians chapter 2. I referenced this a little bit last night, but we're going we're gonna to take a look at it. Look at verse 16. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 16. says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a what? Or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, that's been there all along, correct? This wasn't just written a few years ago. This has been there all along. How many of you, show of hands, were raised that Sunday was the Sabbath and you weren't allowed to eat out, you weren't allowed to do any work. You were, uh, weren't many of us raised under that kind of teaching? But at the same time, the scripture said all along, don't let anybody judge you on whether or not you keep a new moon festival or a Sabbath day. Those are all a shadow of what is to come. The reality is in Christ. Folks, the law was given so that man would realize they can't keep it. Why would we all of a sudden want to put people back under that law? 
We've been set free from that. Now, that does that mean we can do whatever we want? Paul deals with that in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of Romans. And he lays that all out and says, by no means we died to that way of living. We don't want to just start using our freedom to do whatever we want. We're still to let God write his law in our hearts. But folks, years ago when, when that whole attitude of Sunday was the Sabbath and all that stuff um, I actually uh, worked at a grocery store during that time period when we were up in New Hampshire, and it was a Sunday afternoon, and I was scheduled. I usually wasn't scheduled on Sunday, but I was scheduled one Sunday afternoon to bag groceries at this grocery store up there, Stop and Shop. And uh, the lady coming through the register that afternoon recognized me, and she knew that my dad was the preacher in that town. And she said, aren't you the preacher's son? And I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, what are you doing working on the Sabbath? So I had already begun bagging her groceries, and so I started taking her groceries out of the bag and putting them back on the, on the, register, on the little area there. And she goes, what are you doing? I go, I shouldn't be doing this. She then goes, no, 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 bag mine, bag mine. <laughs> be careful. Be careful of trying to be one of those ones who's judging whether or not everybody around you is keeping the law. Oh, you just actually went to our transition there, John. You just went to our transition. There's only one judge, and that judgment day is coming. Go to John chapter 5. No, you're actually walking. You're, you're tracking with the Spirit right now. John actually quoted our next passage. Go to John chapter 5. Look at verses 22 through 23. John chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. It says, The Father... Judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Who is the judge? Jesus. Jesus. Now, as we already dealt with in our study of Matthew chapter 7, where it says, Judge not this, you be judged, we dealt that there are times that Christians are to make judgments. But as you remember from our study, they're very few and very far between, and it's only by certain individuals who are spiritually mature enough to let the Spirit of God work through them for the purpose of reconciliation and restoration, not for the purpose of condemning and to tear down and to make ourselves feel better. The Bible's really, really clear in Galatians 6.1 that if you see your brother caught in a transgression, it doesn't say if you see your brother commit a transgression. Do you, you understand the difference? It, it, would you like someone pointing out all the times you slipped up? Of course not. But there are times that some of us are caught in a transgression. And the scripture says in Galatians 6, 1, you who are spiritual, restore them gently, but examine yourself first. Make sure you're not doing something and also that your heart's right when you go to do it. But scripturally, there's only one person that's qualified to really make judgments on whether or not people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Let me ask you this question. Why is Jesus the only one qualified to make that judgment, to make those judgments? He's the only one that's perfect and he's the only one that knows people's hearts. See, a lot of times we try to judge people's motives. Well, the only reason she said that is because you don't know. You don't know. Well, my Bible says, and, and Jesus says, yeah, but what about David? What about the priests? What about Naaman when he's allowed to go bow before that idol? What about that prophet who lied and said he's not here, but God, you see the danger of trying to become a judge of everybody around you? Folks, you will enjoy your walk with Jesus Christ a whole lot more if you would let him take care of you and you leave everybody else to the Lord and you're going to be a whole lot more fun to be around. In Romans chapter, four, verse four, uh, four, chapter 14, verse 4, it says, 
Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. Listen, and the Lord is able to make him stand. Years ago, I was uh, meeting with this one pastor. I'd never met him before. I'd been invited to come preach at his church for a week. And so, as always, when I'm meeting a new pastor and in a new area, I'll go spend some time with the pastor and his wife. And I was talking to this one pastor, and I said, tell me your story. But the interesting thing is, before I asked him to tell me his story, I asked him to talk about his church. Tell me what's going on. He actually was giving me a tour of the sanctuary and the facilities, and he was lamenting and complaining about the fact that most of his church were filled up with people that sat in the back rows and didn't do anything. They just come on Sunday, sit in the back, do their time, leave. And he was grumbling about it. By the way, you've all heard the joke that the back row of a church is like the shoe department, full of sneakers and loafers. <laughs> Heels, is that, that's, a, that's a new one too, very nice. But So this guy was just grumbling about those folks who came to church and didn't do anything. I said, do me a favor. Tell me your story. I want to get to know you. Where were you born? When did you get saved? How did God call you to ministry? And so as he began to share his story, ironically, there was a period in his life when he was one of those people who used to sit in the back of the church and do nothing. And I stopped him and I said, hang on for a second. Did you just say that there was a period where you actually were one of those people that sat in the back? And he goes, yeah, I was. I go, look where you are now. God's got you actually a pastor of a church. How did God get you from the back row to here? Well, he did this and he did that. I said, is he not able to do that with them too? Why does he need your help? He doesn't need you condemning them. He doesn't need you pointing out all the things they should be doing. Pray for them and ask God to do in their hearts what he did in yours. And you trust God to do his work. We have a tendency sometimes... Well, go to Luke chapter 6, and let's see how Jesus words it in Luke 6. We have a tendency sometimes to totally miss what God's really doing because we're so caught up on whether or not everybody's following the law perfectly. Luke chapter 6, look at verses 6 through 9. In Luke 6, verses 6 through 9, the scripture, it says, On another Sabbath he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. By the way, we read about this in Matthew. It just said he had a withered hand. This is the fun of reading all the gospel accounts. You get little tidbits. It was his right hand that was withered. All right. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed one, with one another what they might do to Jesus. If you put Luke's account and Matthew's account together of this story where he's in the synagogue, go back to Matthew's account real quick. And listen to that, that section we didn't finish reading when we reread Matthew 12. Go to verse 9. And he, Jesus, went on from there, and he entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. We now know it was his right hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on a Sabbath, will take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched that out and was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus points out 
that the Pharisees would pull their sheep out of a ditch if it happened on the Sabbath, and the priests work every Sabbath. He's saying that Sabbath laws do not prohibit acts of necessity or service to God or deeds of mercy. In other words, God's more interested in people than he is whether or not they keep the law. That's where God's going. That's where his heart is. Are you more concerned with your legalistic interpretations of God's law than you are about the people whom Jesus died? Let me ask you a question. How are Christians right now perceived in the world by the lost world? Judgmental. Judgmental. We're seen as the people that don't do those things and don't do those things and look down on the people that are living this way and that way. And we, we're, and I'll get right to you, Janie, we're seen as people who think we're better than other people. Is that the picture Jesus gave of God when he walked on this earth? No, he was known as friend of sinners. I just finished talking to a group of senior adults from First Melbourne and uh, about the cruise that's coming up. And a lot of them have never been on a Just a Preacher cruise before. And I took the time to tell them, um, our ministry is not big enough to take over the whole ship like a lot of other ministries are able to do. And so I told them, um, you're going to be going on a Bible cruise with Just a Preacher Ministries with a bunch of sinners. Oh, and by the way, we're going to be taking about 150 of our own. Because what did what Paul said that this trust, this saying is trustworthy, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost of the chief. Romans chapter five, God demonstrates his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, we've forgotten that. And unfortunately, the church today is perceived by the world just like the Pharisees. Go ahead, Janie, you were going to say something. A lady at work, there were some things going on and she looked at me and she said, you're the Christian, you can judge this. Wow. Isn't that sad? No, no, no. Yeah. I have no right to judge. I'm learning to repeat what's being said because people have been contacting us from around the country saying, we're loving the Bible studies, but could you repeat what's being said by the people in the room? Janie just said that she was at work and someone at work said to her, uh, hell, you're the Christian, you can judge this. No, that's sad, folks. That's not how it's to be. We're to love people. We're not to be focusing on whether or not they're keeping the law. Go to John chapter 16. And look at verses 7 and 8. John chapter 16, look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Whose job is it to show the world they're sinners? The Holy Spirit's job. What is our job? Let the love of Christ shine through us and love the people around us and point them to him and let them know that God loves them and that they do need him. But the fact that they, whether or not they realize they're sinners, that's not our job. Whether or not they're keeping the law, that's not our job. Our job is to Point them to him. Let me just say this real quick and then we'll move on. I'm going to hit it fast. When we act like God needs our help to point out what everybody else around us is doing wrong, whether they're lost or saved, when we think it's our job to point out what everybody, how they ought to be living. By the way, let me just say this to you. Uh, 
Whenever you tell someone as a traveling preacher that you're about to have back surgery, you'd be amazed how many people have come to tell me how I should really do it. Everybody's got an opinion on whether or not I should have surgery, shouldn't have surgery. You better not do that. You better do this. And all. Why don't you try this instead? Well, you go to my doctor instead. And I, your intentions may be good, but everybody has an opinion on how people ought to live their lives. Let me ask you an honest question. I want to show my hands here. How many of you are willing to honestly admit in this room tonight that you struggle sometimes with knowing what God's plan is for your life? But how come we all know exactly what people ought to be doing God's plan for their lives? Isn't that interesting? We want to be God. We want to tell everybody else how they ought to be living. I say this to you again tonight. I told you I laid the foundation and I'm going to lay it down again. Don't be one of those people. And when you think that you have to point out everybody's sin, you actually are saying the word of God is not capable of doing it without your help. Go to Isaiah 55. Let me give you some scriptures real fast. So that we can finish our study tonight and keep us up with the group on Tuesday. Isaiah 55, look at verses 8 through 11. And by the way, it would do some of us some really good to spend a little time whenever you spend time alone with the Lord, really meditating on these verses. Man, if you let these truths sink in, listen to what the scripture says. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God says, my word's powerful enough to take care of it all by itself. It'll accomplish everything I want it to accomplish. And by the way, how I do things isn't how you would do things. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verses 12 through 13. These are passages that we kind of know pretty well in our hearts and we can quote them, but I don't think we've meditated on them to the point that they sink in. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verses 12 and 13. Because if we really meditated on these and allowed them into our heart, we'd be acting a whole lot different and the world would not see us as judgmental. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word's able to get to their hearts. Doesn't need your help. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, look at verses 14 through 16. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. He says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'm going to give you a couple more scriptures real quick, but yesterday I had the privilege, like I do a lot of times when I'm in town, of speaking to the men that come to the luncheon at Men in Motion at Central Baptist on Tuesdays at noon. And I got up yesterday, and I've been preaching to them now for 18 years. 
I got up to him and I said to him yesterday when I started, I said, I got nothing for you today. I know I've been preaching to you for all these years, but I got nothing today. And they all got real quiet. And I said, oh, I prepared and I got scripture for you, but I've got nothing for you. I'm just going to give you God's word, which is what I've been doing for years. I don't come with anything that I'm going to impress you with. And all I did was just read them scripture yesterday. Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Look at verses 30, uh, 28 and following. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul says, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus. They've met him in Miletus. And he says to them in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And I want you to put together a constitution and bylaws and a church manual that will protect you from these men. Is that what it says? I mean, think about it. Paul says, savage wolves are going to come in. He had just said, I don't believe I'm going to ever see you guys again. And they were weeping at the idea that he'd never see him again. And he goes, I've warned you with tears. And he doesn't say, set your paperwork up to protect you. Look at what he says in verse 32. And now I command, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Even though I know this horrible thing is going to happen, God's word's enough to take care of you. I commend you to him and his word. How many churches deal with issues because the Constitution says, or the manual says, and you're not following the manual, instead of the word of God says, and we want to use it to help you get restored. Go to John chapter 17. Look at verses 14 through 17. John 17, verses 14 through 17. Jesus is praying in the last hours before the cross. And he says in verse 14, talking about his disciples, I've given them what? I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. God, I've given them your word, and I want you to set them apart through your word. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says something here in Matthew and, and something else that's brought out in Mark's account of this story, which I want to take the time we have left tonight to deal with. But as we wrap up that last section, please don't ever think that the word of God is not powerful enough to take care of it. Don't think it needs your help. In Matthew chapter 12, look at verses 6 through 8. Look at what Jesus says. He tells, says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And then he goes on and he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let me just point this out to you here. When Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, Jesus is claiming to be God. I've never really noticed that until I was doing the study for this week. 
I know there were a lot of cool things that he was teaching here, but I never had really seen that in saying something greater than the temple is here, he was claiming to be God. You see, the temple was made as a place where God would what? Would live and would dwell. If the temple was made for God to dwell, what's the only thing that could be greater than the temple? God himself. And Jesus says someone greater than the temple. Back up one book. You're in Matthew. Go back to Malachi chapter 3. Look at verse 1. I love this. The prophecy about the coming Messiah. In Malachi chapter 3, look at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to whose temple? His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus says someone greater, something greater than the temple is here. He's claiming to be God. Uh, Now also, he also said the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This too is a bold claim of deity. Because the Sabbath was the day set aside specifically to worship who? God. Go back to Exodus 20. Go to Exodus chapter 20 and look at verses 8 through 11. In the giving of the law, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Sabbath day was a day to worship God. And then Jesus comes and says something greater than the Sabbath is here. And he also says what? The Son of Man is what of the Sabbath? Lord of the Sabbath. If he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's who? He's God. He's making a bold statement. By the way, that's why the Pharisees are wanting to kill him. That's why after saying this, they go to conspire how they might destroy him. Mark's account of this, though, adds something else that Jesus said. Go to Mark chapter 2. Look at verses 23 through 28. Mark 2. Look at verses 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made... For man, not man, for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus now also we see says, Mark brings it out, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, when God gave the Sabbath and the Sabbath laws, He actually was doing it as a gift to man. Man wasn't made to meet the Sabbath requirements. The Sabbath was made as a gift to man. Can you all tell me why? Why is the Sabbath made as a gift to man? Okay, one day of rest, which is nice, but that's not really it. A reminder of who's in charge and who needs to be in charge. 
uh, definitely a reminder of who's in charge and who needs to be worshipped, but that's not even really it either. Ah, very good. Glenn said, what about resting in him? I was actually playing golf today, only for four holes till it drowned us, with a man who was at the Bible study last night. And he said this. He said, I'm with you with what you were teaching last night. He said, but I'm still struggling with where to still keep the laws like not murder and don't steal. How do we put together keeping the Sabbath and holy because it was a command, yet we're not to follow Sabbath regulations. And I said, let me ask you a question. Have you put your full faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Have you ceased working to try to get to heaven and you're fully resting in Christ? He said, yes. I go, then you're keeping the Sabbath day. It's every day. The Sabbath is a picture of who? Jesus. Remember, it's a shadow of what is to come. The reality is found in who? Folks, you are actually, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're actually keeping the Sabbath holy by trusting in Jesus as your Savior. The purpose of the Sabbath is exactly, you're resting in Him. Go to Hebrews chapter 4 real quick. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, look at verses 1 and following. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. By the way, that make you feel better about not knowing the address? The Hebrew writer says it's written somewhere in the Word of God. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. All right? It's written somewhere. Don't feel bad if you have trouble with the address. And God rested, this is what he quotes, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall never, not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long after, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given the rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on by David, hundreds of years later. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Do you see it? Folks, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you've put your full faith in Jesus, you're resting in him for your salvation, you're keeping the Sabbath. It was a law pointing to Christ. And you're resting from your works. You have a Sabbath day every day, hopefully, because you're resting in Christ. You're keeping the Sabbath law. We're not breaking it. We're set free because it's in Christ. Now, I'm going to wrap up tonight with something that I didn't wrap up with last night. I covered it earlier in the study, but God, for some reason, had me hold off to the end tonight. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus quoted something at the middle of our section there in verses 6 through 8. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In other words, you wouldn't have condemned my disciples for eating the grain. They're guiltless. You, but you condemned them even though they weren't guilty. But he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, 
you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. So it sounds like it's kind of important that we know what this means, right? He's quoting from Hosea chapter 6. Go to Hosea chapter 6. Some of you say, I don't know where Hosea is. You probably could find Daniel. Go to Daniel, and one book to the right of Daniel is Hosea. Go to chapter 6 and look at verse 6. God says in Hosea 6, verse 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. As I read that, it reminded me of something David said in Psalm 51. And Psalm 51, as David is writing this psalm after he had committed that horrible sin with Bathsheba, and, and, and God was judging him in the sense of discipline. In Psalm 51, David writes in verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and contrite heart, O God, that you will not despise. If you read the whole psalm, David says, I was born a sinner. In sin was I, con I mean, I had sin when I was in my mother's womb. And he says, God, you need to wash me clean. You need to give me a new spirit and renew the steadfast spirit within me. And you need to purge me and wash me clean. And then he says, if, there, if you wanted me to do something to get it right, I'd do it. But all you're wanting is a broken heart, a contrite spirit. And didn't Jesus stand there on that mountain and say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn because of the fact that they're poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Folks, the law has been given to show us our need of Jesus. What we need to be praying for the people around us who aren't keeping God's law is that God get to their heart. Do we get to people's heart by making sure they're keeping the rules? No. All the rules do is fuel sin. And so, folks, if you today are trusting in Christ as your Savior, if you have that desiring mercy, you understand that you're right before God and you're resting in Him and you're keeping the Sabbath regulations. And when you really understand that he's forgiven you, you won't be one of those people who are pointing out all the other things everybody else is doing because we do it to make ourselves feel better. Why do you need to feel better if you're already forgiven? Why do you need to feel better if you're already forgiven? I love you. See you next week. Thanks for coming.